Let's pray before we get into before we get into the Word of God. God, we just thank you for your Word. We just thank you that you want us to understand you, and that your Word proclaims you. God, what a blessing it is is to open it up and and see um, what you say, God, through these words that are on this page in this book called the Bible. Thank you, God, that you desire to communicate to us, and thank you, God, that you've given us your word so we can. And as we look at it this morning, God, in the book of Ephesians, I just pray, God, that you'd open our hearts, open our minds, open our thoughts to understand you more. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Going through the book of Ephesians, and we're on week number seven, and you guys notice that we're kind of going a little slower, (laughs) just in a sense of... When it gets really rich, we just got to slow down, shift a couple gears in low range, and figure out exactly what the Bible is saying. And that is exactly what we've done through the first sentence, which is a total of 13 verses. And so as we're working through these 13 verses, we're now going to go past them, kind of. And what I mean by past them, kind of, is that the very first verse says this, Blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That verse drove, is going to drive the entire book of Ephesians. That is driving our entire series. Look at the series name, The Believer's Blessing. And what does it say? Blessed be the God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. These blessings are what drives us. These blessings are what sends us. These blessings are inside of us, and they're inside of us now. They're not inside of us when we get to heaven when we die. No, they're inside of us now. They're what makes us. They're what molds us. They're what transforms us. And if we look through the last couple of weeks, we talked about what those blessings are. We're, we're chosen. We're adopted. We're redeemed. We have wisdom. We have insight, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. See, the gospel comes with power. And the way that it comes with power is that Jesus left heaven. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life, the life we could not live. He died on the cross for our sins, placing all of our sins upon his shoulders. And then he went to the grave and then he rose again. And it says, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Saved? What does that mean? That means adopted a new father, a new family, a new relationship. Saved, that means redeemed, that we have, we have are set free. We're washed. We are clean. We are saved. We have eternal life. Wisdom and insight, that means we know, we understand. The whole world looks different as a result of us receiving Jesus Christ. We're sealed. That means we're not walking alone. We have the Holy Spirit to comfort, to convict. We have the Holy Spirit as a revealer. We have a Holy Spirit that is walking with us. This first passage is so powerful because It doesn't only give us the gospel, it gives us what we have inside of the gospel. And that's what we've been talking about for six weeks. Well, now we're, Paul is leaving it. But is he really leaving it? No, he's not leaving it. He says, this is what it is, and these are your blessings in Christ. And then after he is preaching a sermon, he does what I've never done. He just breaks into a prayer. (laughs) He just starts praying. He's preaching, and all of a sudden, he's just like, I just, I just, I'm so emotionally moved in regards to this passage that's completely charged that I'm just going to break into a prayer, and it's prayer for the people that are in Ephesus, but it's also a prayer for every single person that has lived on this earth and opens up the Bible and asks what's in the Bible. This prayer is for you. This prayer is for me. This prayer is for the persecuted believers back in Ephesus. This prayer is for all of us. 
So he says that one of the most richest passages in the entire Bible, and then he breaks into prayer. We definitely want to ask, what is he praying in this prayer? Because he could have said anything. But what is he praying? Let's go through the prayer, and then we're going to figure out what he's praying for. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 is our passage. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and love for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So as we're looking at this prayer, we just want to ask one question. What is he praying for? What is he praying for? Because there is a focus that is on this prayer. And if he is going to say that one sentence, which is an extremely powerful sentence, that run-on sentence, carries so much weight, carries so much power, what's he going to say? What's he going to pray for after he says something about that? Before we get into what he prays for, we want to ask the question, what he is not praying for? What does he not pray for? If you look through the verse, you'll see that he doesn't pray for, he doesn't pray for emotions. I mean, if you think about it, these guys had problems. These had social problems, economical problems, physical problems, relationship problems. It sounds like they have the same problems that we do. And all of a sudden, Paul breaks into this prayer, and he doesn't pray for the emotions. He doesn't even pray for the social problems that even existed, even though they probably had social problems. He doesn't pray for the physical problems that they have, even though they had physical problems. They didn't pray for the political problems that they had. He didn't pray for that as well. He didn't pray for the change of situations. What did he pray for? When we look in this verse, we said, well, he prayed for, you know, three different things. It says, I pray, you know, the hope of his calling. He says, hope to which you have been called. Is he praying for us to have hope? Often we think about this, that God is praying that his people have hope. He is not praying that the people have hope, but you said it says it in there. Is he praying for riches? He said, riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. Isn't he praying for riches for us? No, he's not praying for riches. He's not praying for glory. He's not praying for inheritance. He's not praying for those things, even though those things are mentioned in our prayer. Well, what is he praying for? Power. We see that, that we would have incomparable great power. Is he praying that we would have power? Well, we see the word power in there, but he's not praying for that. He is just praying for one thing in this prayer. He's praying for one thing. I want my people, my church, and the church from here on out for the next 2,000 years to have this one thing. I mean, this is what he's praying for. And what is that one thing? That we would know. (laughs) That we would know. I pray that people will know what they have. That's what he's praying for. 
I pray that people will know. Paul does not ask God to give them what they do not have, but Paul actually prays God would reveal to every single believer what they have. I pray that every believer in this entire room, I pray that every believer the last 2,000 years would know what they have. Why would he go to that direction? Why would he go to that length? Because he believes that if we understood what we already have in Christ, it would take care of our emotions. It would take care of our social problems. It would take care of our physical problems. It would take care of almost every situation that, we're, situations that we're dealing with. He's not praying for what we don't have. He is praying for us to know literally what we do have, which brings us back again to the first verse that says, blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed, in past tense, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I pray that they will know. Know what? Know four different things. Paul is praying that we know four different things. Here's the first one. Number one, that we'll know God better. You somebody that is paralyzed by guilt? Let me ask you a question. How do you get rid of guilt? I mean, how do you get guilt completely wiped off of your chart? When you're in a dark room and you're feeling this, I've sinned so bad, I've done something so wrong, I am so lost, and you're paralyzed by guilt, how do you get rid of it? Well, here's God's answer how to get rid of it. You need to know his mercy a lot better than you know his mercy. What do you mean? That's the pill you take? <laughs> you mean that's, that's the antidote to get guilt wiped out? Yes. You have been given mercy that is beyond belief, and you don't know it. And if you did know it, what's going to take place? Guilt is going to be removed if you'd open your eyes to mercy that is given. In fact, we can go through all of our emotional problems in this regard. Somebody who is paralyzed by worry, somebody is paralyzed by worry needs to increase their knowledge of God's wisdom and how he is in control and how he is moving and how he is working. Because if we could figure out how God is working, oh my goodness, we would have answers. If we can figure out how the government is working, oh my goodness, we'd be confused. <laughs> but if we can figure out how God is working, we would have answers that would even get rid of our worry. The word no carries more power than we even believe and understand. People who are paralyzed by fear. We need to increase our knowledge of God's commitment to us. We need to increase our knowledge of God's commitment. We say that we know God to get into heaven. Well, do we know, know God? I mean, he's saying, I want you to know God better. Why? Because I want you to get rid of your fear. And if I want you to get rid of your fear, you need to know my commitment. So when you say, I know God, feed on your knowledge of God, and you'll understand his commitment. And when you understand his commitment, what's going to take place? The fear is going to get, it's like putting water on a hot flame. How do you get rid of shame? You need to increase your knowledge of God's grace. You need to understand it. This is a formula. Nobody on this planet can say this is how you get rid of shame. If something has taken place in your life and you have shame, nobody on this planet outside the Word of God can say this is how you get rid of shame except God. And his answer is what? You need to know my grace a lot better than you do. Because if you could just figure out my grace to the point, your shame would actually be wiped away if you just get to know me better. How do you get rid of anxiety? You need to increase your knowledge on God's sovereignty. 
How do you get rid of your hopelessness? You need to increase your knowledge on God's gift that he's given to you that you literally possess right now. See, we are all driven by what we know. Nobody does anything what they're told. I mean, the Bible's not even about what you're told. I mean, we think it is. God says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then we're supposedly do it. No, nobody does what they're told. We do, we do what we know is the best thing to do, and that is what's driving us. That is what's sending us. That is what is moving us is what we know. A couple weeks ago, we had a special missions offering. You guys did not do what you're told to do. What you were told to do is that we set a goal for $125,000, and if you guys give $125,000, that money would be spent for missions across the world. You guys gave $180,000 instead. So <laughs> you guys clap, but you're not listening because you never get told what you're told to do. You never do what you're told to do. No, you are doing what you know. There's something inside of you. You know what God is doing around the world. You know that people around the world need Jesus as their Savior. You know that there is a great commission that you're responsible for. You guys know God's work and what takes place. And as a result of you knowing it, we can't keep money in your pockets. You see how it works? And we're not even going to turn it down. Why? Because we're not supposed to turn it down. We're supposed to continue to go. But you're not doing what you're told to do. You're doing what you know is right. And by what you know is right, you go way past, way beyond than what you're told. Ephesians 1 says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. When we're saved, guess what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. I know God. Paul's praying, I pray that they know him better. Wisdom and insight is that I see in context, I see in perspective. Revelation means a supernatural disclosure that God has given to me, which is completely and entirely personal. That's what's going to drive you. That's what's going to drive the church. That's going to, is what's going to drive the world. Just the power of knowing. That's why Paul says, I pray that they know God better. Cleans up everything. What else did he pray that we know? Number two, that we would know the hope to which he has called us. Our English word does not do the word hope any justice whatsoever. Because we say the, these words, I hope that it's sunny this afternoon so I can work in my yard. I hope that I get a good job to support my family. I hope that I stay well. I hope that I get well. Hope is wishful thinking in the English language, in our language. And so when we read the word hope in the Bible, it, it gets translated into our culture and says, well, we just hope that, you know, we get eternity and, and, and those things. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of something extremely powerful. In fact, Hebrews just explains what it is. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hope is an assurance that something is going to happen. In fact, I'll give you the definition of hope. A life-shaping certainty that hasn't happened yet, but yet you know for a fact that it will. That's what hope is. Biblical hope. 
It is going to happen, and since you know it's going to happen, you're going to hang on to it. You're going to grab it with both of your fists. You're going to grab it with both of your body. You're going to hold on to it and never let it go because it's a life-shaping certainty that it's going to happen. And when it does happen, you're not going to be surprised because you had that certainty. You had that hope here on this world. Here's Ephesians 18, 118. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, before he even uses the word know, he says, the eyes of your heart. I pray that the eyes of your heart, the heart is the inner man, which includes the emotions, the mind, and the will. So even reading this verse of exactly what it's saying, I want your emotions, I want your mind, and I want your will to know the life-shaping certainty of his amazing plan for your life. You can translate it that way. As we define the words heart, and as we define the words hope, I want your emotions and your mind and your will to know the life-shaping certainty of his amazing plan for your life. That's what he wants to know. That's what Paul is praying for. Not praying for situations. He's praying that you open your mind to what you have. Open your mind to this hope. Number three, something else that he's praying for. That we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? I think the, the tip of the sword of the riches of his glorious inheritance is that one day we are going to rise again and live with him forever. That's the riches of his glorious inheritance, that everything will be cleaned up. I will have a new body, and I'll be able to see God face to face in his glory. That's the riches of the glorious inheritance. I just want to read this verse. I pray also that your eyes and your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance inside of you. It says in the saints. Inside of you right now. Not inside of you later, but inside of you right now. I want this hope to be so certain inside of you that it will drive you, it will move you, it will send you, it will transform you, it will make you, and all of your decisions will be dictated, determined by this hope that you have in the riches and the glorious inheritance I have to give you. I like to read, um, sounds sick, but I like to read different stories about people that were martyred um, for the Christian faith. And the reason why I like to read it is because I want to know what's going on in their mind. I want to know what's going on in their psyche. I want to know what they're hanging on to. I want to know what they're standing on. I want to see their emotions in the process of their life literally being lost. And there's one story in particular in the book of 1 Maccabees that talks about a mom and her five children that were martyred. Now, these mom and their children were believers. They were Christians, strong Christians, and they were martyred for their faith. But being martyred for your faith, you don't just kill people because they believe. You want to make a spectacle of people so other people will not believe. So what they would do is they would never martyr anybody in private. They would martyr the people into a public arena, people in a public place. And as they brought this mom and their five children into this public place, they make their speech that if you believe this is what's going to happen to you, and it's not going to be a slow death, you take one limb off at a time. 
And after you take one limb off at the time, you often take their tongues out, you take their ears off, and you split them open in front of everybody. He says, if you believe, this is what can happen to you. But if you don't believe, you get to live. And so they put the lady and the five children on the test and says, all right, mom, since you're the boss of these five kids, all you need to do is deny God and tell the world how they can live or embrace God and tell the world and show the world how you're going to die if you do. And what did the mom say? The mom said, we will not deny God. And if you really think about this in perspective, is it, as individuals we can go through this, but you've got your five children up here as well. And those five children were not going to die after the mom died. Those five children would die after, the mom would die after those five children died. So the mom had to watch the five children die, and she knew that if she said, I believe in God. So what did she do? She looked at them and looked at the crowd, and looked at her children and said to this, her children, everything you lose today will be given back to you at the resurrection of Christ. Don't deny God. That's what she told her children. And of course, they performed their acts. But as they performed their acts of, of mutilating, mutilating these, these children in front of everybody, it was said that one of the children literally grabbed the things that were taken off of him the things in his stomach that were removed, grabbed the things and said, God is going to give them back to me at the resurrection of Christ. I am not losing anything you've taken off. He'll put it all back together. This is a life-shaping certainty of what they had. And they knew it to the degree that even if they gave it away today, that they would get it back at the resurrection of the dead. Therefore, they let it happen. They let it happen. Number four, what else does God ask us to know? That we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. There's some words that are very powerful and um, in the, in the English language. In other words, they get people's attention. And I'll just use, you know, um, not use a word, but describe a word. A swear word is a powerful word. And that's why so many people say it, is because they're trying to gain attention. They're trying to gain their, their emotions. They're trying to express themselves. They're trying to be a dominant person. They're trying to be a powerful person. So the swear words come out. It's extremely negative, but as they are using the words, they only use them for the purpose to have people turn their heads because they do carry an emotional power, a rebellion power, a power that brings attention on the person. That's just words that are out there that are powerful. There's some positive words that carry a lot of power as well. One word is love. The kid is completely transformed by a parent saying that I love you. I mean, it goes way past their intellectual mind, and it goes deep into their heart, and it moves them, it drives them, it sends them, it makes them. This word love carries a lot of weight as it is given out. Another word that is very powerful is a word that is I'm sorry. I mean, if somebody has done something to you, and somebody walks up and says very... Um, 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 remorseful, the words, I am sorry, it can bring the power to heal or even start a process to heal as these things come out. There's a lot of powerful words, but there's one word that carries power more than any single word in, the entire, in our entire dictionary. It carries so much power because it is the word that drives us, the word that sends us, the word that makes us, the word that uses us, the word that transforms us. And do you know what the word is? It's not love. The word is believe. The word is, 
is believe. I believe that exercise is healthy for me, therefore I do it. I just started swimming again, and I swam a mile and a half. And when I swam a mile and a half, I wanted to drown in the process. But I believe that it will do something for me, so I'm going to do it again next week and hopefully not drown. But I don't want to do it, but I believe that it's good for me. I believe that eating healthy is good for me. I believe that if I love my wife like Christ loves his church, that it would be good for and healthy for our, our marriage. I believe that if I invest money, that there will be a good return in the end. Have you ever invested money? If you've ever invested money, there is something inside of you that made you do it. What was it? You believe that you'll get a return in the end. If you don't believe you'll get a return in the end, what are you going to (laughs) do? You're not going to invest it. Why would you invest it if you didn't believe it? Your belief is what is making it happen. In fact, everything that has happened is because somebody believed that it should be done. Or something believed that it should be so. Or something believed that it was right. Columbus set sail because he believed there was a new world. <laughs> set sail across, across the ocean because he believed in something. Henry Ford believed that every one of us should have an automobile. So since he believed that every one of us should have an automobile, he did not just make an automobile and then give it away. He created an assembly line. So as he did his work to give us an automobile, what he did is he did every single decision with what he believed in his mind should happen. Therefore, the assembly lines have started and the assembly lines will never stop. But what did that? Somebody's belief. The Wright brothers believed that we could fly. Therefore, what did they do? They risked their lives to make sure that it was shown. Belief is like a weapon. Whatever direction we point it, something is going to happen. Because if we believe something is going to take place. 1861, the government believed that the slaves were unhealthy for humanity. And therefore, we went into war with the South that believed that an economic collapse would take place if we got rid of the slaves. 80,000 people would have what? Were killed. Over what? They were killed over a belief. They're killed over a belief. I believe that slaves are not right. They say, I believe that we can't get rid of the slaves. 80,000 people died. It's driving us. It's sending us. It's making us. It's moving us. And if there is a World War III, it is going to be the one word that's going to start the World War III. If there is a pandemic that's going to stop, it's going to be one word that's going to make it stop or one word that's even going to keep it going. What we believe so we've got so much news that is, oh, if we can just get people to believe, we can control the world because believe is the one that goes way past the mind. It goes right into the heart. It goes right into the psyche. And it doesn't only move individuals. It moves countries. It moves nations. In fact, World War II, how did it start? It? Everybody knows that one man started World War II. Adolf Hitler started World War II. How did he start World War II? He believed that there should be an empire of pure Germans. And as he believed that there should be an empire of pure Germans, what happened? He went into Poland. And he believed that World War I was literally not the spot, um, it was not the way to do battle. He believed that you had to be much more aggressive. 
And so what he did when he go into Poland is he aggressively went into Poland and he defeated it. And once he believed that he defeated Poland, he believed that he can go further. So he consistently defeated and defeated, defeated, defeated. The other thing that backed him is that he believed in racial purity. So he got rid of the gypsies, he got rid of the sick, and then he started getting rid of the Jews just because he believed it and then convinced other people to believe it. And then the other half of the world stood up and says, well, we don't believe it. And World War II was going like crazy with thousands upon thousands of people dying. What was driving the war? Because people believed something. And that belief was driving, the belief was sending, the belief was moving, the belief was transforming, and people were dying literally because they believed in the right thing to do or not do. For each of us, one side burns to heaven, or glows to heaven, and the other side burns to hell. And there's only one word that's going to keep us out of it. What is it? Believe. (laughs) Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then what's going to take place? You will be saved. It's interesting how God used that word, believe, because he knows it's the most powerful word that's out there. It's a word that sends us, moves us, transforms us, and uses us. Let's read the passage. I also, that the, I pray, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. What does that power look like? Let me ask you the question. Power in believing that this is not your home, it might look like those family that was sacrificed. Power believing that death cannot kill us, Power in believing that God is in control no matter what takes place? Do you see the power if we believe the transformation that would be taking place? What he's saying, I pray that they would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he describes that power. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. The power is not the working of his mighty strength, is like the working of his mighty strength. And what does that strength look like? It says, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Belief and the power that comes with it. What's the power look like? It is like the working of God's mighty strength, which he exerted at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why didn't he use another power to give an example of what power looks like? I mean, we've seen earthquakes carry lots of power. We've seen tidal waves, tsunamis take place. We see that power. We hear thunder. We hear that power. How come he's not describing power in those things? He's describing all power rests right here in one spot, and it's all at the resurrection of Christ. Why did he say that? Because it's easy to kill. And all power that we've ever seen in this entire life kills. Killing is easy. Happens all the time. In fact, all of us are moving specifically toward death. It's hard to make somebody alive. It is hard to make somebody who's dead alive. And where does Christ do it? What does Christ do? He says, I have power beyond all that kills. I carry the power to make alive. And the tip of the sword is right there at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where all the power is because that is the power where you are going to find life if you 
believe it. Because if you believe that Jesus rose and he can make you alive, it will make you, it will mold you, it will build you, it will strengthen you, it will shape you, it will renew you, it will transform you, it will fuel you, it will give you a completely new life. If you believed it, that's why Paul is saying, I pray that they know the power when they believe the power of his mighty strength, the power that carries the weight of the resurrection of the dead. It's just interesting that Paul had so many things he could have prayed for. But instead, he just prays that we know. Just prays that we know. That we understand not what we don't have, but what we possess. We live in a world and we live in a culture that we come to church for the purpose of getting something. Well, if you receive Christ, you have everything. <laughs> you have everything. You just need to dig into your life to find out what you have and get to know it better. Because when you figure out exactly what you know you have and you feed on it and you hang on to it, life is going to come out. Just like Christ came out of the grave. Number six, to know God personally is salvation. To know God increasingly is sanctification. To know God perfectly is glorification. That's a quote from Warren Wearsby. Here's a summary. I pray that you know. I pray that you know God more. I pray that you know the hope of your calling. I pray that you will know the riches and inheritance that you will have that the saints carry in the saints. I pray that you will know the power of your belief that you have in God. That power is like the working of a mighty God that carries the weight of the resurrection of the dead. That is what is in us. Paul gave us an awesome passage. You are adopted. You are chosen. You are redeemed. I give you wisdom. I give you insight. I give you a sealing of your hero, Holy Spirit. And then he prays, I pray that they would just know it. I pray that they would know it. I pray that they would know it. Jesus was in his upper room. He was given breaking the bread and sending out the, the wine or the juice, the drink. And he made a resemblance and he says, every time that you take this bread that I break and that I hand to you, I want you to do something. I want you to remember that my body was broken for you. I want you to remember that this was done for you. And every time you drink of the cup, what I want you to do is I want you to remember that this, my blood was spilt for you. I want you to remember. Well, let's just put a different word in it. I want you to know it. <laughs> I want you to know it. Why do we take communion? Take communion is, is just like a, a whole brand new wedding again, like a brand new salvation, a brand new wedding, just in a sense that you're walking up there, you're coming to the bread, you're coming to the cup, and God, I want to know what you did for me a lot better than I do than I did before. That's my challenge to you today, is that when you do take the bread, when you do take the cup, come up here with thinking, I want to know exactly what you did to me. I want you to speak to me right now and show me this glorious grace that you have. Because I have it inside of me, and I want it to come alive. I want it to come out. Before we take communion, I just want to give you guys some logistics, because we haven't taken it for a while. There's elements in the front, and there's also elements that are taking place in the back. The worship team will come up here, and we will sing. And as we're singing, um, don't feel like you all have to come up. In fact, just take your time. We're going to sing a total of three songs, um, unless we do it faster. But we're going to sing a total of three songs, and I'd like the worship team to even come up right now. 
We'll sing three songs, and you guys sing three songs. Stay in your seats if you want. Come up if you want, but just keep the flow uh, consistently, uh, consistently happening. I do need to give you guys the instructions on these cups. These cups, because we had a lot of confusion last night. There is one cup, but there's really not. There's two. You split one, you have the bread, and then you also have the juice. And then we also have ones that are sealed up as well. So definitely pick up the cup and then split them. You'll see the bread and you'll see the juice as we take communion. Come up as individuals. Also come up as family. Come up as couples. However you guys want to come up, we just encourage you to do so. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your broken body. This broken body, God, was given to us, and we are saved as a result. God, we thank you for your spilt blood. God, your blood was spilt for us, and we are saved as a result. As we come up as individuals, as we come up as families, as we come up as a church body, God, I just pray, God, you just reveal to us what we have, and that we won't forget it. But God, we'll remember it consistently, and we'll grow in that memory. We'll grow in knowing you, God, more and more and more. I just pray that this will be a time, God, of interaction of us with you. In Christ's name, amen.